Though we're starting a series, obviously, in Second Chronicles, immediately I want to interrupt that series because this is the week where we are recognizing the 40th anniversary of the decision of Roe versus Wade in the whole realm of the abortion debate within our nation. And I think that it's wise biblically, and I think it's wise for us congregationally to pause and ask some serious questions about how we address this issue in the time period in which we live, and to do it within the whole realm of a Christian worldview approach. So what I'd like you to do is to turn with me to a passage of Scripture in our Older Testament, the book of Job where Job, interestingly enough, is asking some serious questions with regard to the quality of life. And here in the midst of wrestling with the quality of life, he gives us a powerful statement regarding the sanctity of life. And so in Job chapter 10, verse 8 through 12, in a time period of, frankly, the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, which is the time period in which Job lived, you and I now find a poetic description of what God is doing within the womb, and my prayer is that we'll be able, as a result of these moments together, to even more so when we leave than we came, to be able to articulate a biblical worldview perspective on the whole matter of life. So Job chapter 10, beginning with verse 8, down through verse 12, here is this man tremendously afflicted physically, who now states, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn to me, turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life, and showed me kindness. And in your providence, watched over my spirit. So we're going to be asking God today to give us some tremendous insight into this challenge, this very difficult cultural conflict we find ourselves in, Christians can never become numb to this subject. Recently, Time Magazine produced the cover issue of the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, that 7-2 decision on the Supreme Court in 1973. What we want to do now is to be able to get our arms around a Christian worldview as to how to address this issue and pray for God's grace as we look to our Lord in prayer. And our fathers, we're coming before you. What we want to do is to be able to understand how all truth is your truth. Biologically, historically, legally, scripturally. A difficult subject, but you are the God, the source of life. And we need to go to the one who's provided the instructions of what life entails. Now, Father, no matter what our background is, and it's possible, very possible, that some are struggling deeply with decisions made in the past over this subject. 
This is a congregation committed to truth and grace, not one to the exclusion of the other. And I pray you minister at that point of need. Each of us need an enlarged understanding of who you are and how you work. So we turn to your word, asking again, Father, that as you warm our hearts and engage our minds, you challenge us to come here to see Jesus and him only, which we will now do. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the image that's gone viral, if it could appear on the screen. Perhaps you and I have become aware of what has taken place in recent months. For 15 seconds, Randy Atkins, daughter Nevea, just 15 seconds before the delivery by C-section, on October 9th, 2012, this picture was taken. And the picture that was taken reveals little Nevea reaching out and grasping the finger of her surgeon. Now, Mr. Atkins and his wife, Alicia, posted the picture on Facebook just before Christmas. And as I've mentioned, it's gone viral. Now, Mrs. Atkins, who's a professional photographer, had the picture printed on canvas and provided a copy to her gynecologist, Dr. Alan Sawyer, who delivered their daughter. And as we are well aware, Dr. Sawyer said the photograph showed something, quote, really rare. Unquote. Because he usually sees the baby's head appear first. And according to Facebook's statistics, Mr. Atkins' page was seen by more than 36,000 people in the first week, first week that it was posted. Now, what fascinates me and probably fascinates you is we look very carefully at what's occurring here and I'm struck by the creative design of our God and what's taking place. Is that as that little child is grasping the surgeon's finger, at this point she's grasping the one who is called upon to be the deliverer of life. That's huge. That's significant. In Dr. Nigel Cameron's book, The New Medicine, while this picture still appears on the screen, Dr. Cameron says the most fascinating recent comment on the Hippocratic Oath is one which originated with Margaret Mead, the anthropologist. Her major insight was that the Hippocratic Oath marked one of the turning points in the history of humankind. She says, quote, For the first time in our tradition, there was a complete separation between killing and curing. Throughout the primitive world, the doctor and the sorcerer tended to be the same person. 
He with the power to kill had the power to cure. He who had the power to cure would necessarily also be able to kill. But with the Greeks, Margaret Mead went on, the distinction was made clear. One profession was to be dedicated completely to life under all circumstances, regardless of rank, age, or intellect. The life of a slave, the life of the emperor, the life of a foreign man, the life of a defective child. But society always is attempting to make the physician into a killer. To kill the defective child at birth, to leaving the sleeping pills beside the bed of the patient. Now that was penned in a different era, and I would take issue with her statement regarding defective. But what we want to be able to do here is to look at that powerful statement that she's made with regard to the Hippocratic Oath and this powerful image simultaneously that's being impressed upon our thoughts with the way in which this little girl, Nevaeh, is reaching out and grasping the finger of her surgeon 15 seconds before the C-section is fully accomplished. And draw out for ourselves now three significant truths about God in his relationship to life that I think has tremendous bearing upon the culture in which you and I live today. Now, the first truth that I want to draw out flows out of verses 8 and 9. We're going to phrase it like this, number one. God shapes human life. God shapes human life, revealing purposeful care. If you've ever been to Williamsburg, you've probably watched the potters at work shaping their clay into this incredible design that has been developing conceptually within their own thought processes as to how they want that form of pottery to be seen by others. What Job now does, artistically and poetically, is that he provides for us an expression biologically of what God is doing within that womb. And so in verse 8, and again in verse 9 now, there are three poetic expressions that help us to better understand how God goes about shaping human life within that womb regarding his purposeful care. Start in verse 8. Notice it says, your hands shaped me. It doesn't say anything about the parents in these verses. Because we have to bear in mind that God is the source of life and the parents are the means of life. And that gets overlooked in this cultural debate because so often the argument is, is that this is the woman's body. But we want to be able to articulate and argue biblically, wisely, and lovingly is that there's a difference between the source of life and the means of life. God is the source. He is the maker. The parents are the means, the avenue. Now look very carefully Nowhere is parentage spoken of. It's now God and that child in the womb. Your hands shaped me. 
Now, the Hebrew word here for shape carries also with it the idea to fashion, to cut, or to carve. For those of you that are artistic by nature, what he's doing now is he's using the words of the artisan, the craftsman, to be able to argue a biological truth. God is the source. The parent is the means. But notice here, by saying, your hands shaped me, it presumes a design. And it presumes that there is a designer behind this design. When you see now Job articulating this, he's struggling with the issues of the quality of life, which so oftentimes in abortion arguments is used against the pro-life position. So I've chosen to use somebody who's struggling with the quality of life and allow him to articulate the sanctity of life within that womb. Your hands shaped me, fashioned, cut, carved. Notice that this is done personally. Your hands. Furthermore, this is done purposefully. There is shaping here. There is a design, but there's a designer behind this design. Now let's say that in 2016 you're running for president, and I hope one of you do. And you're standing before a moderator now, and you are being posed some significant questions with regard to the whole cultural matter, of course, of abortion, of life, which tripped up some of our prospective senators in this past election. And you don't want to make the same verbal miscues that they made. How would you respond? Now, with regard to the morality of killing a developing fetus, you might begin. It's not enough to say, we are not sure it is human. We must be able to say, we are sure it is not human. Here's a starting point. It is not enough to say, we are not sure it is human. We must be able to say, we are sure it is not human. Now, because we live in Wisconsin, draw out the hunter analogy. If a hunter were to see movement in a bush and shoot at it, it would not be enough to argue that he was not sure it was not another hunter. He would have to be able to say he was sure it was not another hunter. Then you build off of this, and you progress with this, and you turn to your opposing candidate and ask, and how can we be sure the fetus is not a human being in light of this analogy? 
then you state clearly, we cannot. It's far easier to be sure to the contrary that it is, but, and you go back 40 years, Roe v. Wade, 44 by that point. The court's whole argument fails if we are even in legitimate doubt about the matter, you see. Meanwhile, little Nevaeh is grasping the finger of his surgeon, creating a bit of unrest, you see, out there in the internet community with regard to what they have just processed visually. Meanwhile, Job, who is grappling with quality of life issues, is still arguing for sanctity of life issues. As he says, your hands shaped me, not the parent. Parents, the means. God's the source. Your hands shaped me. And notice the second expression. Made me. At this point, what you and I do is we take a step back and realize that in the culture of evolution, people then make an assumption based upon evolutionary premises that abortion should therefore be legitimate. They may not make that connection. But you are able, from a Christian worldview standpoint, to recognize that in secular thought processes, if you pull God out of the equation, and there is no accountability, and there is no authority with regard to matters of life, you are left with liberty. And where there is liberty without authority, then it's up then to whoever has the power at that point to determine whether this one will live or die. So now you and I have to understand the evolutionary philosophy and the culture and begin to address the whole matter of intelligent design and this intelligent designer who stands behind his design. Meanwhile, this little girl is grasping with her hand the finger of the surgeon as the baby cries. You shaped me. You made me. See, the tension in our culture, as we've articulated over the course of these weeks, is the tension of authority and liberty. The says who? The who has final say. But now, as you've camped on that next phrase, made me, you and I realize we cannot merely argue for traditional values. We've got to argue for original values. Otherwise, we're left with, and whose tradition is valid and whose tradition is invalid. But you're developing a Christian worldview perspective now, and so what you're doing at this point is that you are going back to the whole matter of origins. And whether it be a naturalistic worldview or a Christian worldview, everybody has a view of origins. So now the Christian has got to be able to see in the culture the connection they're making between evolution and abortion and the connection the Christian makes between the idea of God as creator, not only of this world, but also the one in the womb as a little girl is reaching out to grasp 
the surgeon's, the surgeon's finger, you see. So now you look at this and you're pondering the whole issue of original values. And maybe you remember the story of the man who bragged, God, I can even make a man out of dirt, just like you made Adam out of dirt. And God said, okay then, show me. And the man reached down and scooped up a handful of dirt, and God said, no, no, no. You've got to create your own dirt. Find winsome ways of expressing the truth in love. And meanwhile, continue to communicate the whole matter of truth, because all truth is God's truth, biological, legal, historical, scriptural. And as you do so, then you allow people who are wrestling with the whole issue of the quality of life matter, will you now turn and destroy me, Job says, and yet he does not allow that question in and of itself to negate the sanctity of life statement he has just uttered, your hands shaped me and made me. Remember, the authority of life determines the quality of life. And God addressed this with Moses in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses was arguing that, that I am not an eloquent man and God took responsibility for some of the human limitations of this world, such as my Down syndrome sister experiences, trying to function in this world. But God is her creator, and God is your creator. And so out of this comes the third significant statement out of verses 8 and 9, where now Job, it's as if he's reaching out and saying, remember me? Remember that you molded me like clay? Will you now turn me to dust again? The God who creates. The God who preserves. Now, one of the challenges, and certainly we want to develop these tensions and recognize them, authority and liberty. Sanctity and quality. Traditional values, original values. Now, if you are a student or if you have children who are students, one of the challenges is to be able to develop in this visual age the distinctiveness of what is happening in the womb. And so I would encourage the students in this congregation to look very carefully at some of the 3D, 4D elements of ultrasound that now, for example, appear on the screen, such as the child at 12 weeks, busy kicking the feet even at that point, and curling the toes. Notice the 3D ultrasound at 14 weeks, and the 3D ultrasound at 21 weeks, and ponder this powerful statement from Dr. Wayne Grudem, a friend and fellow colleague and a former professor of mine as well, who in his book Politics writes, Modern ultrasound technology can give highly realistic images of the preborn child. 
images that look so much like a real human person that they have great persuasive force. For that reason, many abortion advocates try to discourage pregnant women from seeking such vivid images. Nancy Keenan, president of NARAW in Washington, D.C., said, Politicians should not require a doctor to perform a medically unnecessary ultrasound, nor should they force a woman to view an ultrasound against her will. Listen to this. Abortion advocate William Salitan, writing in Slate magazine, a magazine I read to try to get the other side's view and worldview, made this honest statement. Ultrasound has exposed the life in the womb to those of us who did not want to see what that abortion kills. The fetus is squirming. And so are we. This pro-abortion presenter states. Now, if you're a student, or if you have then somebody who's in class, here's what you can do. Provide in biology class, when you get to developmental biology, an opportunity to simply walk through the various stages of development within the womb. Say, so here's what's happening at 12 weeks. Here's what's happening at 16 weeks. Here's what happens at 20 weeks. And what you are doing visually and creatively, because all truth is God's truth, you know, you are making a very powerful presentation challenging people's assumptions with regard to whether or not this is a person distinct from the mother herself, not someone who's simply enmeshed in the mother, someone who rather is being housed by the mother. Look, for example, because this is the time period in which Job lived, Look at this story. It's told in Genesis chapter 25, verse 22 and 23. Fascinating story. It's about the fact that Isaac, you see, and Rebekah had been longing for children. Just longing for children. And in the midst of it all, lo and behold, something has occurred now here within the womb of Rebekah. Not one. Two children. And so you pick it up here, and what you notice here in this phrasing is that the babies, which is how it's translated, jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? I love what she does next. She goes to the source. So she goes to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. This is not potential life. This is life with potential. Again, this is not potential life. This is life with potential. Notice it says, and two peoples. In the state of Mississippi, where Haley Barber had been governor, there has been a personhood issue that has been pushed forward with regard to the child within the womb. It's percolating in various states. Notice here the wording. 
not two fetuses. Somehow people all of a sudden embrace Latin in this culture and call them fetuses. Don't know any other Latin, but they know that one. But what God is saying here, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And what's fascinating here is that the image of God matter is at hand because Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons within one Godhead, bestows personhood upon the individual at the point of conception. At the point of conception. And by doing that then, what God is saying to you, and what God is saying to me, is that when you and I are, are articulating an argument in the whole realm of abortion versus life, we're dealing with the matter of the image of God and the issue of personhood within the Godhead. So now you and I ponder that statement that's found here. It's the baby's jostling two peoples from within. And we've got to find a way to be able to articulate this well. And so students have got to find ways biologically, historically, technologically, legally, undergirded and framed within a Christian scriptural worldview standpoint of how to be able to reason this out to get people to recognize the distinctions of life within the womb. And when we do that, then we shift and we move forward to verses 10 and 11, which is the second major truth that we want to draw out for ourselves. Number two, God develops human life. Distinguishing personal features, which is what ultrasound provides us. Now, what I want you to notice is how Job poetically, brilliantly in my estimation, I'm sure yours as well, groups together four significant clauses to argue this point. And he's talking here about child development, developmental biology. In verse 10, did you not pour me out like milk? Stop right there. Now what he's doing is that he's speaking poetically of what, can I simply say biologically, the human sperm? That is what the milk refers to at this point. The male sperm. But notice here, he is speaking upwardly, vertically to God, who is even the creator of the sperma. Did you not pour me out like milk, the source? Notice the next phrase. And curdle me like cheese. Underline the word cheese because it's a poetic expression of the embryo. The embryo. In other words, now through fertilization, he is poetically describing what occurs within that womb biologically, developmentally. But now he gives us still a third clause, where he then adds, clothe me with skin and flesh. 
powerful expression here. He's basically saying, my God dressed me in that womb. Physically. And if that's not all, he then adds, fourthly, and knit me together with bones and sinews. Developmental biology. Skeletal system. And what you're doing is you're continuously developing distinctions of that life within the womb, such as what you can then argue for in a biology class if you were a student or equip your student to do this if they're putting together a project with what comes next, a visual statement of DNA, which helps us to still better understand the distinctiveness of that child within the womb. So now what the wise parent, what the wise grandparent, or the wise student might do at this point, whether it be high school, college, on and on, you might want to go to the National Human Genome Research Institute and look some things up, basic things. So I just read a few for us. Question, what is DNA? We smile. We all know that elephants only give birth to little elephants. Giraffes to giraffes, dogs to dogs, and so on for every type of living creature. But why is this so? And immediately lights are going on inside your mind because Job lived in the time period of Genesis, you see. Each after their own kind. Each after their own kind. Each after their own kind. The phraseology of what takes place in the opening chapters of God's creative work. So now, all truth is God's truth, including the biological as well as the scriptural. And so they answer this by saying the answer lies in a molecule called DNA, which contains the biological instructions that make each species unique. DNA, along with the instructions it contains, is passed from adult organisms to their offspring during reproduction. The owner's manual. DNA is found inside a special area of the cell called the nucleus. The nucleus. And because the cell is very small, and because organisms have many DNA molecules per cell, each DNA molecule must be tightly packaged this packaged form of the DNA is called the chromosome. And there you and I are looking at the double helix. So this is the owner's manual, and God is the owner, and we are the managers to be able to present this well biologically, historically, legally, culturally, framed scripturally in a way that resonates in the mindset to get people to start rethinking their worldviews because once you are able to talk about God as the source of natural birth, then we can also talk about the God who is the source of spiritual birth, you see. But now you don't want to end there. You see, you have taken these four poetic phrases that mark the ability to describe what occurs. And now, maybe the student in a biology class begins to provide some visual perspectives for, for those that are listening, watching, observing, thinking. And so, 
We begin to do that for them. And so look at what happens here, fertilization. As, as Job um, politely phrased it, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? And then perhaps as you're working on this project with your, with your son and your daughter for a presentation in school, or maybe you're a college student looking for ways to be able to develop this to get people to start rethinking worldviews. You take them to week seven, where the baby has glossy eyes and tooth buds developing. And on into week eight, where the baby's skeleton and head and face and arms, legs and fingers, so far circulatory system, major muscle groups are intact. And you go to 9 through 12, and you notice that, my word, the baby is even curling the toes, initiating that, initiating that. Then we go to weeks 12 through 14, and now you have just talked about the double helix, and you've talked about everybody have their own design, and behind the design stands the designer. This is, in essence, what Job is doing poetically. And so you draw their attention to the lower right-hand corner, and you're noticing that this baby has fingerprints. Fingerprints. Not identical to the mother not identical to the Father, but rather through that unique DNA, the double helix, the whole matter of the message from the one who's the source of the message himself, God, he is now giving another visual aid of the distinctiveness of the life within that womb. You're going to want to say to that son or that daughter, put that one on the screen. Get them the students in that class to start thinking about the distinctiveness of the child within the womb, separate from the mother herself. And then you go further, and you look at 18 through 20, where the hair is developing. And 20 through 24, and the opening of the eyes, and so forth. And we'll just fast forward through weeks 30 through 34. 34 through 36. And when we get to that newborn, that newborn, what strikes us in this entire developmental biology presentation that we've equipped our, our children or friends to use in a class is that life does not begin at birth. Birth is only a change in the place of residence of an already living, active person, you see. Can I say that again? Life does not begin at birth. Birth is only a change in the place of residence of an already living active person. 
and our minds and our hearts immediately drawn to that great poetic expression in Psalm 139. If it could appear on the screen. And notice how this is so consistent with what Job has been articulating in chapter 10. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And isn't that exactly the expression that Job also uses in verse 11? Knit me together with bones and sinews describing the skeletal system. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Quite imagery, you see, of the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. But this is not potential life. This is life with potential. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. As you're drawing out the tensions in our culture of authority and liberty. The tension of sanctity and quality. Moving beyond traditional values to original values. Noting the tension between the legal and the moral and getting people to realize that not everything which is legal is moral. That there's a law above the law. And the moral law shapes national law, ideally. Getting people to see that they're making assumptions if they assume evolution, that yields to abortion. But if we assume and we build upon the design-designer concept, and establish the distinctiveness of the one within the womb and the miracle of birth, of life. We're able to see the connectedness of all this. And that we who love Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we go to the polls to vote, we don't say, I'm simply a single-issue voter, but I am a crucial-issue voter. And I do have a set of priorities of first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. Because if we can't get life right, what will we get right? And so now, we're working this thing through, and as we do so, we realize that we are not pitting then faith versus science, because all truth is God's truth. What we're doing now is we are pitting science versus scientism. Science versus naturalism. And showing then, there are some who have a very limited worldview that excludes God from. But can we consider a worldview that incorporates the idea of God with the designer who stands behind his design? Now as you do that then, we and I, you and I are prepared for this third major poetic truth that flows out of verse 12. Notice now that Job says, You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence watched over my spirit. So our third major truth is this. God establishes human life. Providing watchful oversight. And look at the wording. You, not my parents. They're the means. You gave me life. 
and showed me kindness. The Hebrew word here is hesed. We get loving kindness, God's loyalty, God's grace. And now for this man who medically, physically is grappling with the issue of quality of life matters, he incorporates still the idea of sanctity of life thinking. And in your providence, in your providence, watched over my spirit. Providence. You got video in that word providence. Very consistent with the idea of ultrasound in that word providence that you and I find there. So now you look at this culture, and we are arguing here, even at this point, there is a law above the law, and not all which is legal is moral, and the moral should shape the legal. And so you begin to rethink then, what happened 40 years ago in 1973? In the time period of Roe v. Wade, Watergate was becoming intensely scrutinized. O.J. Simpson's running for over 2,000 yards. The dollar's being devalued. The culture's in turmoil from the 60s. Are people paying attention? Where Harry Blackman steps forward, and in a 7-2 decision, focuses the argument of the right to privacy to develop his statement for the national public based upon the 14th Amendment. So I figured, well, then let's look at the 14th Amendment. Because you bought and handed out constitutions over the Christmas season and put them in kids' stockings. And so now you have them turn to the 14th Amendment, and what you're going to do now is to say, let's have a little constitutional conversation. I wonder if Harry Blackman got it right. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What comes next was the phrase that he used to argue for right to privacy in due process. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the process of law. Friends, I see that as a strong argument for life. Not for an argument to the right to privacy. That's why Justice Byron White, one of the dissenters, wrote, I find nothing in the language or constitution to support the court's judgment. William Redenquist, who also dissented strongly, wrote, to reach its result, the court necessarily had to find within the scope of the 14th Amendment a right that was apparently completely unknown to the drafters of that amendment, and Madison would probably be scratching his head right now. Scratching his head. Where did that come from? That's not original thinking. Judge Bork has just passed away. A strong proponent of originalist thinking in the interpretation of the Constitution. 
He'd remind us as well then, don't overlook the First Amendment, which comes next on the screen here, because the, here is where the believers challenge today in articulating a Christian worldview. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We realize that the, the, the new conversational phrasing is not freedom of religion, but freedom of worship, thus shrinking the influence of the believer in the public square to be able to influence national law through moral law. But read on. Or abridging the freedom of speech. Thus I see a collision course between freedom of religion and freedom of speech in the coming years. That's why we have to equip this congregation to embrace the fact that all truth is God's truth, biologically, historically, legally, even technologically, but framed within our understanding of all that has taken place scripturally. Interesting that in the word providence is the idea of video. For you see, and in your, in your providence watched over my spirit. As somebody was taking a picture, you see, providentially look at the hand a little girl if this could appear on the screen reaching out and touching and grasping the finger of the surgeon as one pro-abortion writer said as I noted on the internet this is disruptive. Be biblically disruptive for the glory of God. Let's stand together. Thanking you now, Father, for who you are. Thanking you for what you've done thanking you for what you've written and what you've revealed. And I pray, Lord, no matter the degree of our education, the degree of influence, we all know people. And we've got to be able to articulate all truth as your truth in such a way that resonates within the heart, the mind of people, drawing them to the design, leading them to the designer behind the design, and leading them to an understanding of it's not enough to be born once. We must be born again. So, Father, may we see all of this within the context of what you've revealed through your word and take this as an opportunity to minister for your glory in the confusing days in which we live. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.